Hello, and welcome to the Common Good Project. My name is Chris Conway, and I'm the co-convener of the project. Uh, today, we continue with our four-part lecture series presented by Ryan Mead, entitled Regulations and the Common Good, Compliant to the Common Wind. Uh, today is our second lecture in the series and is titled The Common Good and the Metaphysics of Law. As always, thank you to the Faculty of Law, as well as Blackbriars Hall and the Aquinas Institute for hosting the Common Good Project's events. Uh, today, we want to provide an extra thank you to the Aquinas Institute as the principal host of these four lectures. Uh, just as a reminder, these lectures, like our conversation series, spring from Thomas Aquinas's definition of law being an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by the one who has care of the community. The format of this lecture uh, and our other uh, other lectures in the series will be fairly straightforward. Uh, Ryan will present a formal paper for approximately 50 minutes, and then I will provide a brief response with questions to Ryan. Uh, and then I also uh, will read questions put into the chat box. So as always, we encourage you that you, that you put questions in the chat box. Uh, and if we don't get to all of uh, these questions today, we will use them for future programming, uh, or in the case of these lectures, Ryan will likely address them uh, in the next lecture. Uh, I'll dispense with our bios, which are available on the Faculty of Law website and hand it over to Ryan to begin. Ryan. Thank you, Chris. Before I start the meat of the paper, I have two introductory items. I'll set out the parts of this paper and I'll also provide a brief note on sources, which I didn't address in the last lecture. This paper, thankfully shorter than lecture one, is divided into three parts. First, a short wrap-up from last week on the morality of law, but with an emphasis on how the content of law needs to conform to an extrinsic normative morality based on who we are as humans. And in this way, the first part serves as a bridge to the second part of the paper, a discussion of the metaphysics of law focusing on a sliver of metaphysics, causation. I recognize that in some quarters there may even be a debate on whether causation is part of metaphysics, but I use it as a key point in understanding how we exist and who we are as humans. I'll accept causation as what it is in common sense, that one thing can cause another, that there can be an effect. Metaphysics is important for an understanding of anthropology, in my view, and it is in studying who we are, particularly our purpose or final cause, that sheds light on law. And then there's a short third part, which has some thoughts on what is the common good in the context of what metaphysics shows us about ourselves, and how the common good regulates the content of law. The bulk of today is taken up with the second part on metaphysics. If, and if it seems as though I'm inching very slowly to some type of description of the common good or definition of the common good to tackle it head on, then you're right. I'm still setting some foundation in this lecture. I suppose I should also add that this paper among my four papers may talk the least about specific laws. Though, for those of you who are wondering, uh, spoiler alert, that blue fire door notice regulations do make an appearance late in the paper. Now, uh, what I hope is a short note on sources, it 
It's regrettable that in an oral lecture, a listener can't see the footnotes, at least if a listener is the type of person interested in footnotes. Since today is a narrower topic than last week's grandiose tornado of ideas, I'll say that my main sources today are not too surprising. They are the key works of Aristotle in politics, physics, and metaphysics, and his two works on ethics, parts of each overlap each other. Plus, Thomas Aquinas's often overlooked commentaries on the same books of Aristotle, and Suarez's even more overlooked commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. I will leave the rest of the sources to a bibliography that I'll send around. So, part one, a bit more on the morality of law. In the last lecture, I described regulations as commands of the state, not drafted by the legislature, but drafted and promulgated by the executive function. Although some states may require certain regulations to be passively approved by the legislature, such as through negative procedure of statutory instruments laid before Parliament in the UK, I would still consider these to be executive action regulations because under the negative procedure process, Parliament only has a type of veto and does not, doesn't change the words of a regulation in a statutory instrument. And in fact, the regulation can come into effect with the force of law prior to Parliament's approval, merely by the minister's signature. I also described two types of executive action regulations. Those that look back to a primary legislation source and fill in gaps of that primary legislation. And those types of regulations that are promulgated by the executive function of the state by virtue of the office of the executive without reference to any specific written code, legislation, or explicit convention. This latter type of regulation I noted as controversial but necessary at times, particularly in emergencies. Next week when I talk about authority of the state and the executive function specifically, I will discuss emergencies more, but I'll discuss them in a way that I don't believe it's helpful to think of emergencies as something outside the norm or set aside as something special. Rather, it seems to me that actions able to be taken in emergencies by the executive function reveal the authority an executive has. And those emergencies and the authority in the case of emergencies is less an exception than it is a grounding of the authority of the executive. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. It also strikes me that what we used to think of as emergencies, the executive needed to confront and act quickly on are, as I'll discuss more, becoming quite common. And at some point, if emergencies are common, do they cease to be emergencies and simply become urgent? The complexity of today's world presents governments with situations which regularly need addressing in which there is no code or explicit convention. So last week, one of the goals I had was not only to recognize that there is some inherent authority in the executive to act without reference to code, at least in emergency situations. And those executive actions, regulations, can rightly be called law. But I also sought to set out that all law asserts values. And in asserting values and regulations, 
the executive attempts some type of morality. Faced with a gap without code or explicit convention, the executive must act. But when the executive acts, the executive must still conform to Aquinas' definition of law. The action or regulation must be true law. It must be reasonable, it must be for the common good, it must be promulgated, and it must be done by the one who has care of the community. The limiting principle for the executive in these actions is a normative morality, particularly with respect to the first two criteria that Thomas sets out, an ordinance of reason for the common good. Though this question of normative morality begs another question of what are the norms of that morality? What's the content of the normative morality? What shapes the normative morality? Where does the normative morality come from? Why does it exist? Whatever those norms are, that, that is the limiting principle for the executive action. Indeed, for any lawmaking process, normative morality is the limiting principle. Executive action must be acutely conscious of moral norms because the executive has much more control over crafting a regulation. There is less horse trading and compromise in writing regulations than in a legislature's lawmaking process, or at least there should be. There is no hiding behind the excuse of a compromise to get enough votes or softening this or that in order to ensure votes are whipped efficiently and party members hold the party line. The burden on the executive in thinking through morality and regulations is quite weighty. The moral weight in a regulation is both an internal morality as to its structure, as well as conformance of its content to a normative morality. I use the notion of external morality loosely in the sense more to note that the justness of a law pertains both to its structure and its content and to note that the assessment of the content of a law is a bit different than assessing its structure. The structural morality of law lends itself better to a checklist than the content of a law. For its structure, I would suggest Lonfuller's criteria, as I mentioned in the first lecture, that they're well suited as a guide for what is the gist of Aquinas' third and fourth criteria promulgated by the one who has care of the community. Assessing the content of a law against normative morality is much more complex than assessing the structure of a law. This is more complex because we need to understand better the purpose of a law in order to assess its content. If for the moment we say that the content of law strives to facilitate good actions in a better society, Figuring out what details the community needs in order to be a better society and so that we can be better humans in that society, that's hard work. Because what the community needs to facilitate well-being will change over time. That a law should be known to the governed that is promulgated is something internal to the moral structure of a law, and, and I don't believe that changes over time. But the question of what is too high of interest rate to charge on a loan or whether interest should be allowed to be charged at all, that is the content of a law or regulation, that needs to be assessed against the community's 
needs for flourishing. In dealing with regulations, the executive must take care to assess the content of the regulation to ensure that the content is facilitating human flourishing. The rest of this paper will argue that we discover that normative morality against which the content of a law or an executive regulation must be assessed against we is found in the realm of metaphysics, which provides a key to looking at who we are as humans. To know what the purpose of law is, we need to assess what is our purpose as humans. And to name our purpose requires us to look at unifying aspects of reality. Part two, the metaphysics of law. The listener may need to bear with me for a little bit, but I promise the law will make a comeback before the end of this section. Metaphysics is an accidental name in that in classifying Aristotle's books, the canon placed the book we know as metaphysics after his book, Physics. Meta in Greek simply means after or beyond. The numerous abstract concepts that Aristotle discusses in his book, Metaphysics, became equated with its title. There have been many attempts to define metaphysics, small m, not the book Metaphysics, perhaps because it's not clear that Aristotle intended to group the abstract discussions in this book under a single heading. So it's been hard to define the edges of metaphysics with consensus. The book itself is a collection of multiple texts, but all of the texts generally have something to do with fundamental questions about being, or even more basic, being qua being, considering existence, the study of why things are and how they are. There is an aspect of what does it mean to be that I want to focus on in this part of the paper, and that is the study of causes. Aristotle famously begins the metaphysics with the line, all men naturally desire to know. What does he mean that we naturally desire to know? Well, one point is that we have a natural inclination to knowledge. We are geared to obtaining knowledge. Another point of his statement is we naturally desire to know everything that we experience at a deep level. That when we experience states of affairs, we ask a basic question, why? In fact, as he will state that there is no answering that question why until we know the things causes and causes in plural. And this is one of the key notions Aristotle employs in answering the question why, the notion of cause. If we are studying any question of why, we must be asking about some state of affairs which we apprehend and ask something along the lines of why is that state of affairs the way it is? There are many ways to go about answering that question, and there are many ways to formulate the question. But one way to set about grappling with why is that state of affairs the way it is, is to see the state of affairs as the result of something. 
Or we might try to understand a state of affairs by understanding what came before that particular state of affairs where you're pondering. Humans live in time, we think in time, so it's natural to think about how a state of affairs exists by thinking in terms of how it came about in a time sequence. I think it's fair to say that any state of affairs we deal with in our daily life hasn't come about on its own. Something has preceded it. Something caused it, or some things caused it. The notion of cause and effect is key here. There is, of course, a radical break with causality with David Hume, and then what some would say was a doubling down on causal skepticism by Kant, or at a minimum, Kant filing causality away in a box as just a category in the way we perceive things, and not necessarily a reality. I don't want to get too far into the thinking on the break with causality because I come down on the side of what I view as common sense. There was a circle on a computer screen that was clicked with a mouse and through a series of unfolding events, my voice is being recorded right now. There's cause and effect. And I'll leave it at that. And hopefully, if you're following along, you would accept that there is cause and effect. We typically think of causes as I just described how I am being recorded, as X preceding Y. Something or some things caused whatever we are trying to understand in a sequential fashion. Now, certainly the question of change and movement is a, is a deep one, and I won't get very far into that either other than, again, to just keep working with common sense for a moment on cause and effect. But Aristotle's perhaps most important idea with causes is that causes do not simply precede a state of affairs. A cause need not work only sequentially, but may work contemporaneously by making something a specific thing. Now, when I say this, I want to be very careful because he still is going to posit that causes precede effect and that, as we'll discuss in a moment, an actuality precedes potentiality. But we'll put that off to the side for the moment and we'll simply stick with a couple of basic concepts. So imagine a wooden table. Uh, a, a wooden table is a wooden table, both because it is made of wood and because its shape is a table. Those two things, its woodenness and its tableness, cause it to be a wooden table. Though we may not necessarily see those two items as, as, as sequential in, in time. Because we think in time, because we think in the world that we live in, uh, we still use terminology that is cause-effect, uh, that has a sequence in it. 
Aristotle sets out four causes which answer the question why and aid us in understanding a thing. Uh, I want to focus on what is called the final cause of his four causes. Because we live and think in time, as I've said, we must use language we can understand and, and grapple with and help us to think through things. So Aristotle critically refers to this as a final cause or the end of a thing. And yes, there is, in a way, a linear aspect of moving to an end through time towards the final cause or towards our end. And we can think of the final term, uh, the final cause, excuse me, uh, in terms of purpose, if that helps us. Uh, the, but the final cause is the perfection of a thing's nature. Moving from potentiality to actuality. But the most important aspect of a thing's final cause is that the final cause forms the beginning of a thing. Now, this might sound a bit confusing, that the final cause, which sounds like it comes after something, forms its beginning. The final cause may indeed be described in language that conveys later in time. Again, because we live in time and speak in time. So that the perfection of the nature does happen in time. It's not just that we speak in time, but perfection of the nature does happen over time. But what we perfect, too, is bound up in the nature we already have. Aristotle went so far as to describe the final cause as the end which is prior to the thing that becomes it, in that the actuality precedes its potentiality. Now this may seem confusing, still, that the end of a thing precedes the thing itself, but if we step back for a moment and we think about this notion that actuality precedes potentiality, if we think about that a, a little bit deeper is, is what is the potential for? What, what is there a potential of becoming? There must be something out there. There must be something that it, whatever uh, the potential is that it's aiming towards, that's its actuality. So unless things don't aim at anything, then the end of a thing must, in some way, precede the potential to the end. So let's try another way of understanding this. And the common example is an acorn and an oak tree. So an acorn contains the seed of an oak tree. An acorn seed is not a fully grown oak tree, but every acorn seed, if it develops, only develops into an oak tree. Its nature is to be an oak tree, and we can say that even before the acorn seed becomes an oak tree, it has oak tree-ness to it. 
while the acorn needs the conditions of soil, water, and nutrients to become that oak tree, oak tree is its nature, the perfection of its nature. Everything it is to be is in its nature already. Many external factors will impact what the oak tree looks like, but the external factors don't take away from the acorn's basic participation in oak tree-ness. The acorn seed can only be an oak tree. You know, it can only become an oak tree. It can't be a platypus. What causes the acorn seed to be an oak tree? Its end causes it to be an oak tree. Being the hardy grown oak tree is the purpose of the acorn seed. So this final cause, the idea that all things have an end, is the principal point to drive home here. And that end shapes the beginning. The end of law, whatever the purpose of law is, shapes and gives content to law. That end should be on the minds of the drafters of a law. If the end of law is not part of a state ordinance, then the law may be no law at all, simply force. The notion of final cause and the end shaping the beginning is why I've entitled the lecture series Compliant to the Common Win, or I should more properly say subtitled the lecture series Compliant to the Common Win. This is a line from T.S. Eliot's Little Gidding among his four quartets. It seems an odd phrase, common wind, compliant to the common wind. But what is wind? A basic answer is sufficient. It's a movement of air. How and why does air move and become wind? Somewhere in the distance, there is a pocket of low atmospheric pressure. Air is drawn to the low pressure pocket. This is wind. The low atmospheric pocket is the end of the movement of air, but that end moves the air. The air is drawn to its end. The end forms the beginning. With wind, there truly is something physical at a distant end, which moves the air and draws it physically toward the distant geographically identifiable end. Compliant to the common wind is metaphor for human actions and humans conforming to the natural law. But wind is not metaphor at all in describing the final cause. It actually does have a physical final cause that forms its beginning. Now, there are also many other physical events which can illustrate a something like a final cause that moves a thing. Magnets attract metal, but magnets are not constitutive of the metal they move. That's different with wind. While fans and other objects can move air and create the impression of wind, that type of movement of air will dissipate eventually. With wind, the low pressure system might be said to be constitutive of wind because naturally occurring air movement requires a distant low pressure pocket. Wind simply doesn't exist without a low pressure pocket. Metal exists without a magnet. I don't want to push the metaphor of wind too far. It's dangerous enough for a lawyer to meddle in philosophy, let alone meteorology. 
Hopefully, though, I've set up the idea enough that the end can form the beginning and the final cause of a thing is the most important cause to explore. The common win these lectures suggest is the end of our human nature, the final cause of who we are and why we are. How are we as humans like the acorn seed or like wind? What is our final cause? What is the perfection of our nature? What is our purpose which draws us toward it? Aristotle provides an answer, happiness. That's the final cause, our purpose. But how do we get there? How do we get to happiness? We must look at our nature since the final cause is somehow constitutive of our nature. And the final cause somehow precedes us. An important constitutive aspect of our human nature is that we are social. So, so social that Aquinas argues that we are naturally inclined to society among our many other natural inclinations. Now, it may help for a moment to look at a few lines from Aquinas's commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics as we piece this together. Thomas encapsulates these notions about inclinations and our social drive uh, nicely in a broader picture of how everything works when he says, each thing naturally desires its perfection. Each thing has a natural inclination to perform its proper operation. So when we look at ourselves, we can't help but be social. It is who we are as humans. That is somehow how we act as humans and are turning the potentiality into actuality. Being social, moving in the direction of happiness through our sociality, making sure that our sociality and our, our, our involvement in community is properly operating, if I could say it that way, is how we are moving towards happiness, moving towards our end, perfecting our nature, fulfilling our purpose. And if we stop and think about our life and all its details, complexities, and messiness, it's hard to come up with any other answer to what we strive for other than happiness, that deep satisfaction that our actions in life ultimately fit. And can anyone conceive of happiness outside of community? Our actuality as humans is bound up in communion. An acorn seed can't help but grow into a little sprout that pushes through the earth and eventually grows bark and shoots up tall and spreads wide. We as humans have a drive to be in community with others. As I mentioned in the last lecture, uh, I argue that we as humans can't think, act, speak in any other way than socially. Now, there are many things we must do in being social to fulfill that end of happiness. It's simply not just being among people. We can't 
can't achieve that happiness by being in society in some discordant way. So simply being around people, being in a community without thinking about it, without directing our actions in some way, that that isn't going to get us there. Uh, that's not what Aristotle or Aquinas think of as our social nature or what Aquinas sees as our natural inclination to society. If we aren't working on it, even though this is a natural inclination, we aren't directing our, our, our actions to society, then we risk being in society in a discordant way. And uh, Aristotle provides a key to this growth in perfecting our nature through community in avoiding the discordance that haphazardly participating in society can, uh, can result in. That, that key to the growth in perfecting our nature through community is friendship. I think we also all know this from experience, in that being in discord with others doesn't make us happy or satisfied. If we must be with people in order to be who we are as humans and strive for happiness, then we must be in accord with others. Being friends is indispensable for happiness. It strikes me that all foretastes of happiness we have are experienced socially with others. Being friends with others does, doesn't mean we will always agree with each other, but even in disagreements, we must treat others as ourselves, as friends, or there will be no advances in any dialogue that we have with them. It's not always easy being friends with others and treating them as yourself, but concordance being difficult does not mean we shouldn't strive for it. It doesn't mean we should abandon it. Abandoning the efforts to be in concordance with people means we are shrinking from our nature. And if we do that, then happiness will elude us. So being in concordance with others in society fosters the perfection of our nature, the fruition of our nature. And there we have friendship at the core of what we need to do in order to move towards happiness. As humans, as in communities, in associations, in small societies, large societies, friendship is at the core of each of those societies. Friendship is the goal of society. Friendship is the means by which we achieve happiness. And it's with great irony that we don't achieve personal happiness unless we completely empty ourselves to others by being friends. If our nature is to be social and our natural inclination is to society, then as we direct our actions towards others in friendships, we perfect our nature and become the best person we can be. There was a physical cause that started me, my mother and father, what Aristotle might say was my efficient cause. But it is my human nature and my final cause which moves me, sets out my purpose, directs me to my end. But there is a big difference between oak trees and humans. 
even though the acorn and the oak tree might, might be a helpful way to think about final cause. The difference is that the oak tree cannot make choices. The acorn is determined. It can't be any other thing than an oak tree and it sets out to be an oak tree and that's it. Uh, we humans set out to be humans and we can't be anything other than a human, but how we end up as humans uh, and the accidents of how we differ, differ from each other can be influenced by our choices. Everything that's different from each other has different accidental features. Uh, we humans can develop those accidental features also by how we, what we choose. So let's go back to the oak tree for a moment. Each oak tree is a bit different from each other because of environmental factors. But as I said, all oak trees end up being an oak tree. All humans are different from each other because also because of environmental factors we don't always control. But we are also people with stories, histories, and an accumulation of choices. However, I find myself in any given time for whatever reason, that is how I find myself. Uh, some of them are things that about me that I can't control. There are other things that I have been able to control and I've either made a good choice or a bad choice, but I've gotten to where I am now with all of those features and I need to confront where I am, the situation that I find myself in, how I deal with people, to seek to be friends with them, and that sometimes means being friends with others who are different from me. Friendship is natural to us, but it's not always easy. Now, we have the same human nature, so this provides us something to, uh, to, to base a claim on for, uh, for, for sharing life with each other and this, uh, this, this uh, attempt for friendship. Uh, but we also have to deal with our differences. Um, whether you're rich or poor, though, you still have the same human nature. Whatever skin color people have, they still have the same human nature. Whether people are male or female, they share a human nature. Um, John may be better at math than Sue, and Sue may be a polygot while John struggles to keep the received grammar of his native language tidy. John is a male and Sue is a female. Sue may have more wealth than John. These are all differences and they are real differences. And they matter how John and Sue learn to interact with each other and be friends. But by John and Sue sharing the same human nature, they both have the potential to be friends because they seek the same purpose of happiness. John and Sue exist to be happy. They are interiorly structured to be social and need to be friends. And this last point, I mean with as much force as my words can muster, they need to be friends. Their end shapes their beginning and their journey. What does all of this have to do with law? 
Is Law like an acorn or a human being? Mm, no, it's not like either of them. Law is not like an acorn or a human being, but it is connected to the human goal of happiness. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment. Is law there just to right wrongs when John and Sue can't get along? When they can't figure out how to tap into their shared human nature and be friends? Is that the only reason law is there? To rebalance the relationships? No. It's not there just for the negative reasons of imbalanced relationships. That might be one reason it's there. But law also must be there for positive reasons to help facilitate John and Sue's friendship. To make the last move of this section, we need to go back to Aquinas' description of law to connect these things together. We have been dealing with Aquinas' definition of law throughout Hillary and Trinity terms, but more precisely, we've been dealing with Aquinas' definition of a just or rightful law. But he has other descriptions of law, and I'll consolidate them to state it this way in talking about law in legal systems. Human law is the coercive power of the state. This is a very practical description, which doesn't focus on whether a law binds in conscience and has moral force but simply describes a basic attribute of law. That, in a legal system, a law is a command of the state. Law does not have immaterial substance and physical form the way an acorn does or a human does. Law is the result of humans functioning as the state. It's the result of human acts. Humans, through the state, dictating humans to do something or not to do something. If the dictates are not followed, then there will be a penalty. This is the beautiful realism of Aquinas. He is brutally real about what law does, while being exquisitely sublime in seeking to understand whether attempted law is a just law. He sees law in its first instant as it is, the force of the state, the result of humans dictating do X or don't do Y. But he also examines those dictates to identify whether the dictates bind in conscience, that is, carry moral force. They might be dictates of the state, but they emanate from humans. Aquinas is also realistic that even if a dictate fails the criteria for binding, it, binding in conscience, there may be practical reasons to comply with the dictate as long as the dictate does not require a person to do evil. But back to law as a coercive command of the state. As I mentioned, human law emanates from humans. Humans, that's the key. The state may have a unique role in society, but society is a society of humans. Humans do not exist for the state. The state exists for humans. The state may be natural, but it exists to serve humans. And serve humans to do what? 
What is the end of the state? If the state serves humans, then its purpose must be in some way to enable human to achieve human ends. It must be in some way to help humans to obtain happiness. Law as a dictate of the state must seek as its ultimate goal friendship. It must be fostering the conditions for human flourishing so that we may perfect our nature and become happy. The end shapes the beginning. The end of the state is not the state. The end of the state is human society. And humans must be friends to enable our nature to flourish. So when the state is acting in, according, in accordance with human ends, then the end of the state synchronizes with humans to facilitate the conditions of friendship. So in order to figure out what the state does and what law through the state does, we need to look at where the state and the law points. It points to humans, and humans have an end, which is happiness, and humans achieve that end through friendship. So the state and the law must be ordered to friendship and the conditions for facilitating people growing in happiness. Law, like the state, is not an end in itself. Law always points beyond its immediate command. Now, to be sure, a law must deal in particulars. It must dictate that for fire safety awareness, notices on fire doors must be a certain color. In England, the decision has been made that the color is blue. In Scotland, the decision has been made that the color is green. But law can't end with the instant command of blue or green. There must be something bigger there than simply put blue notices on self-closing fire doors. Law must have a broader purpose, a broader horizon to foster friendship and flourishing. The common horizon of law, for now, I will call the common good. When Aquinas states that for the coercive power of the state to be true law, it must be an ordinance of reason for the common good, he is not saying that a law can't be detailed or particular, but he's saying that its details must always look to that horizon which is beyond the instant command, beyond the specific details, so that the details have a goal of facilitating human flourishing, that the law looks outward and further to something than just do X, don't do Y. A law must always look beyond its immediate command and connect the command to the goal of fostering flourishing. Lawmakers need to keep the horizon in mind and assess the command they are crafting to see how the command helps move society to the horizon. That horizon shapes what precedes it. The horizon is broad and pleasant and comforting as we gaze at it, like all horizons. But 
the horizon really is common, real horizons. Now I'm talking about for a moment, and not just metaphor. Real horizons are common. We might look east or west, or we might look north or south, but there's always a horizon. And hopefully I don't carry this too far, but despite looking at the horizon in different directions, isn't it always physically the same horizon in that the Earth is spherical? Aquinas notes with Aristotle that circular motion is the most perfect motion. Physicists might disagree today, but philosophically that seems satisfying. When we see the horizon, we see it from the posture of the complexities of all those accidental features that individuate us those accidental differences between us and also who we each are as an accumulation of our choices. But we also see the horizon with our shared human nature. This is also why law and doing justice in its immediate command and fostering friendship in its further purpose looks different in different societies and at different times. It's also why Aquinas argues that law need not prohibit every vice or command every virtue. The state is not a puppet master. The state is not the end. It is not tinkering with us for its own sake. It's tinkering with our relations just enough to foster us to grow into better humans. A lawmaker must keep all this in mind that the goal of law always is friendship. A law may have an immediate command that it's driven to right relations or mitigating risk of injustice, but it must keep an eye on the horizon so that it operates with the broader mission. Likewise, the lawmaker must look at the broader goal and figure out what the common good requires and craft the particularities of law to meet those needs. The instant command and the further horizon work in concert with each other. Sometimes the, the need for the instant command presents itself right in front of us. And our reaction might be, issue a command, write that wrong. That may be the right thing to do, but we need to, if we are a lawmaker or an, the executive, needs to think about not just the immediate action, but what is beyond. Likewise, the other way around. In assessing what the state can do to foster flourishing, to mend discordance, that might crystallize what the details of an instant command of the state through law should be. The executive has a particular duty to assess this in ways that I think are, are much more burdensome than legislatures. And again, as we started with, it's not because executive regulations have different criteria for being true law than legislation going through a legislature, but the executive has a strong duty to assess the situation with the common good in mind because the executive is able to craft a more coherent vision with regulations than a legislature can 
with brokered and compromised legislation. So it's even more incumbent upon the executive to keep these goals of law in mind, friendship, and the common good. If you'll beg me the patience of one more metaphor, it's often said that law is a teacher, and I think that is an apt way to put it. But I would also say that the state through law is like a farmer tending a field, carefully nurturing society, but not dominating it. No law or state action ever made anyone friends. The state cannot perfect our nature. The state cannot make us happy. But law can effectuate peace, order, justice, and assist in promoting or preserving human goods that help us grow to be friends. But in the end, we need to choose. We need to give ourselves to others and treat others as, a, as other selves in order to foster friendship and grow to happiness. Part three, the common good is the common wind. This last part is very short. I've been talking about the common good in metaphor throughout this lecture. And while this may seem a good place now to define the common good, I'm still going to leave that until a little bit later in the series. Thomas approvingly uh, quotes Isidore in something that I think is a good way to wrap up this paper when uh, Thomas writes that laws are enacted for no private benefit, but for the common benefit of its citizens. That starts to give us towards something that is uh, putting shape to the common good. That's beyond simply metaphor. And he beautifully writes, since every part is ordained to the whole, as imperfect to perfect, and since one man is a part of the perfect community, the law must regard properly the relationship to universal happiness. The common good orients law. It's the horizon. It involves the lawmaker respecting the dignity of humans and our shared nature. It involves assessing what the community needs to facilitate peace, order, human flourishing. It's assessing the situation and providing some means, albeit through the reality of the course of power of the state, so that in some way it can help us move towards happiness. And in the case of how Thomas writes this, uh, the law must regard properly the relationship to universal happiness. That's all of us, all of society, perfecting our nature and achieving happiness. So uh, the common good is looking at the horizon and assessing the common wind and complying with the final cause. The common good is the moral restraint of lawmakers. And next week, we'll talk more about the executive as lawmaker.
and that moral restraint, the incorporation of the common good, normative morality, friendship in the executive's actions, in the executive's regulations. Thank you. All right. Um, so I'll, I'll thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, and uh, we hope that, uh, to see you again next week uh, when we continue with this lecture series uh, for lecture th three. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to keep up on our events, please follow The Common Good Project on Twitter, or you can find a full listing of our past and future events by visiting the University of Oxford Faculty of Law's website. Thank you.